Well, as you sit down, please uh, turn back in the Church Bibles to page 1,218 to 1 Peter 2. Page 1,218, 1 Peter 2, as we, we continue this uh, series in this book. Last year, many of you will remember that the BBC uh, screened the uh, Jerry Springer, the opera. Uh, And aside from the obscenities that littered the show, many people found the depiction of of Jesus wearing a nappy and describing himself as a little bit gay as profoundly offensive. BBC received around 45,000 complaints. And the vast majority of those complaints were measured and peaceable and responsible. It is difficult, I think, not to draw a comparison with the reaction to the now infamous Danish cartoons of Islam's founder, Mohammed, In London and Denmark and Iraq and Iran and Indonesia and Gaza, thousands upon thousands have taken part in aggressive demonstrations, inciting violence, perpetrating violence and a few even committing murder. Now amidst the proliferating religious and secular ideologies of our day, everyone faces the challenge of living with others whose convictions are different and even hostile to our own. And it is no less true for those of us who follow Jesus Christ. So how should we live if we're Christians in the midst of the world's opposition? Indeed, how have Christian people lived throughout history in the midst of the world's hostile and sometimes violent antagonism? See, the readers of this first century letter were facing the same question. How should Christians live in the face of the world's opposition? If you read through the letter, it's clear that these believers were insulted and abused and suffered because, as Peter puts it later in the letter, they bore the name of Christ. So if you look down to verse 12, you see that some accuse these Christians of doing wrong. Uh, Verse 20, some even punished them for doing good. Nevertheless, in the face of ungodly opposition... Peter writes to these Christians to encourage them to live good lives that commend the gospel. That, I think, is the central thrust of this whole section, and it comes in the heading, really, in verses 11 and 12. Even when you face ungodly opposition, live good lives that commend the gospel. Even when you face ungodly opposition, live good lives that commend the gospel. Now, Peter has just reminded the readers uh, who they are. Uh, We looked at it a a couple of weeks back. In Christ, they are God's people with a responsibility not only to speak the gospel message. You see verse 9 of chapter 2. Followers of Jesus are to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In Christ, God's people not only have the responsibility to speak of God, they must also live for God. Lip and life must go hand in hand. So Christians are, verse 12, to live such good lives among the pagans 
that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, Peter's words are more than just some empty moral injunction to be a better person. You see, God in Christ has, verse 24, borne our sins in his body on the tree, that is, on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. See, the good life, as Peter puts it, doesn't earn God's forgiveness. It flows from it. And yet this side of heaven, it remains a struggle of monumental proportions for every believer to live the good life. If you're here this evening and you're a Christian and you find it hard work living the Christian life, be greatly encouraged. That is exactly what the Bible leads me to expect. You see, for the Christian, this life is only our temporary home. And here and now, we will always battle, as Peter puts it, with sinful desires that war against our souls. It's a battle zone, being a Christian. There are struggles within, and as we've already noticed, there are, there's opposition from without. But facing ungodly opposition, we are to live lives that commend the gospel. Why? Because even when people falsely accuse Christians of doing wrong, living a good life can be profoundly challenging. See, the good life demonstrates the reality, the credibility, the integrity of the gospel message. In a world of secular spin and violent religious lies, the good life commends the truth of the gospel such that some people will be drawn to a real trust in Jesus Christ as a result. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, of course, the question is, what does that mean in practice? What is the good life that Peter commands? And the answer in verse 13 is somewhat surprising, even shocking to our contemporary society, even our church. Uh, To modern ears, there is a six-letter obscenity in verse 13 more offensive than any of the expletives that litter the post-watershed TV schedules. It's the word submit. Submit. Now, I don't know whether you've ever done the Alton Towers theme park thing. I have to confess it's not my favourite place. Uh, Heights and Mia are not a good combination. Uh, This pulpit is about as high as I'm comfortable with. Uh, So you can imagine that oblivion, uh, that ride that drops you vertically from a height of 180 feet at 70 miles an hour into a dark hole in the ground, is not exactly my idea of fun. Of course, my roller coaster loving friends, including my sons, mock me. Dad, do you think you can manage a ride on the teacups? <laughs> now, one of the rides at Alton Towers is called Submission. And it's some fiendish contraption that swings you around and dangles you mercilessly upside down. Submission, the ride, seems a very bad idea to me. But if I am a follower of Jesus Christ, Peter says that submission is a very good idea indeed. 
because it is the mark of the good life, verse 13. Submit to every authority instituted among men. The Bible repeatedly affirms that there is a divine ordering in society that is for our good and God's glory. There is, Peter explains, a divine ordering in civic life, in in the workplace, in the family as we'll see next week. And when we finally get to it, there is a divine ordering in the leadership of the local church. So in the first place, living the good life that commends the gospel means submit to civil authorities, verses 13 to 17. Submit to civil authorities. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you must submit to the rule of national and local governments, not because the state requires it, but for the Lord's sake. Such submission is not, as many would imagine, a restriction on liberty. It is, in fact, an expression of true freedom, verse 16. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. There is, Peter contends, a divine ordering in society through civil government that punishes evil and commends those who do good. And a life lived in recognition of that truth will actually, Peter says, silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Now, throughout history, throughout the world today, people who are ill-informed about and prejudiced against the Christian faith are always looking for a way to falsely accuse Christians. But Peter says by doing good, by submitting to civil authorities, you commend the gospel. You actually silence the talk of ignorant and foolish men. Of course, the question that immediately pops into your mind is, is such submission absolute? Are you to submit to the civil authorities under any and every circumstance? Now, what happens when civil governments punish those who do good and praise those who do evil? Are you to submit to them? Well, verse 17 actually makes it clear that the government cannot instruct you to do what God forbids nor can they compel you to refrain from doing what God himself commands. You see, Christians are, verse 17, to show proper respect to everyone, but above and beyond that, Christians are to love the brotherhood and fear God. In other words, there is a priority in relationships. We honour the government, but we fear or reverence God. The government cannot instruct you to do what God forbids, nor can they compel you to refrain from doing what God himself commands. Nevertheless, part of fearing God is recognising that there is a divine ordering of society, and so we are to submit to civil authorities. So again, what might that look like in practice? Some of you will have heard me mention before Philip Halley's remarkable book, Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed. Forgive me for mentioning it again, but it makes very powerfully an illustration of what Peter's saying here. The book is the astonishing account of of a Protestant town in southern France where over 5,000 Jewish children and adults were saved from the death camps of Nazi Germany. 
The work was led by the local pastor, Andre Trochme, who in defiance of the government, hid many Jews in his home. And he encouraged those in his congregation to do the same. First and foremost, he feared God. Obedience to God was more important than obedience to men. And yet when he was finally arrested, he did not resist. Instead, he submitted to his arrest without complaint or resistance. When the police arrived to arrest him, Trochme's wife offered her husband's captors some food and words soon got around the village that Trochme was being arrested and so members of the congregation started to arrive to say goodbye to their pastor. And Halley writes of that poignant farewell. As they embraced Trochme, they put in his hand precious packets. Long forgotten luxuries like sardines and chocolate biscuits. At first, the two officers watched all this with wide-open, amazed eyes. But as it went on and on, they seemed to crumple. And Silvani, one of the officers, said, I have never seen such a farewell. Never. And he sat there, his head bowed, weeping over his untouched food. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. And for many years, the Christian heritage of this country has meant that it has been relatively easy for most people to submit to our civil authorities. But as we increasingly cut ourselves adrift from such moorings, I suspect it will become more and more difficult. Now, increasingly, legislation is threatened to encourage people to do what God forbids and to refrain from doing what God commands. It's why Christians have been so concerned about the assisted dying bill and the so-called incitement against religious hatred legislation. For followers of Jesus, these are challenging days. Nevertheless, even in the face of ungodly opposition, we are to live such good lives before others, lives that commend the gospel. And that means wrestling with what it actually means to follow Christ and yet to submit to civil authorities. Even when you face ungodly opposition, live good lives that commend the gospel. Firstly, by submitting to civil authorities, but secondly, by submitting to your employers. Verses 18 to 20. Verse 18, slaves, submit to your masters with all respect. I remember as a child that whenever we made an unreasonable request to my dad, one of the, his, his more repeatable responses uh, would be to ask, what did your last slave die of? And the frightening thing is that now that I am a parent, I sometimes find myself saying the same things. I am becoming my dad. I love the old adage that says, when I was young, my father knew nothing. 
since I have become an adult, I am amazed at how much he has learned. (laughs) Now, what the NIV translates here as slaves is is probably better rendered something like domestic servants. In the ancient world, what Peter refers to here was the most common type of employer-employee relationship. And generally speaking, it was a status that conferred many benefits on an individual, even if it imposed many limitations that we would find difficult today. So what Peter has in mind when he refers to, as it's translated here, slaves, are some sort of semi-permanent employee without legal or economic freedom. And it would have included both unskilled labourers, but also what we might term skilled tradespeople and professionals. Normally, people would, would have been paid for their services, and under Roman legislation, for many they could eventually expect to purchase their freedom. So Peter's reference to slaves here doesn't refer to the sort of degrading human exploitation that so marred the 19th century. It is, and I think, a legitimate application to see Peter's instruction here as relevant to the contemporary workplace. If you are a Christian employee, then you need to submit to your employer. I take the all respects of verse 18 as referring to respect that is due to God. Just as you submit to civil authorities for the Lord's sake, verse 13, so verse 18, Christians are to submit to employers with all respect to God. For there is a divine ordering in human relationships. And you are to submit to your employer not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh, for it is commendable. In other words, Peter is making the same point he made in verses 11 and 12, but he's making it now in the context of the workplace. Even when you face ungodly opposition at work, live lives that commend the gospel. Now, of course, that is far easier said than done. Monday mornings are considerably easier if you have an employer who is considerate But if your boss is a complete pain in the neck, you're probably already feeling Sunday night pangs of anxiety in anticipation of tomorrow morning. I like the employee's prayer that puts it, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I cannot accept, and the wisdom to hide the bodies of those people I had to kill today because they really hacked me off. Actually, I know some people in this congregation who have been passed over for jobs because they were accused of being Bible bashers. I know others from this congregation who have been forced out of jobs because of their Christian faith. And many, many more who have had to put up with prejudice and backbiting that has all but worn them into the ground. Now, there'll be more than a few people here who can understand why last Monday was apparently mass sickie day. Did you know that? According to sickness experts, Monday the 6th of February was the day people were most likely to call in sick. An estimated 10% of the population. If you didn't do it, you missed out. <laughs> apparently it's a combination of post-Christmas weariness, bleak winter mornings and difficult work relationships. 
Well, the challenge of 1 Peter is even when you face ungodly opposition at work, a difficult hospital manager, an irritating head of department, an abusive and inconsiderate line manager, even when you face ungodly opposition at work, live good lives that commend the gospel, submit to your employer. Now again, you, you fear God, you honour your employer. Your employer cannot force you to do what God forbids, nor can she compel you to refrain from doing what God commands. Nevertheless, in the midst of the challenges and difficulties of this week, you are, even when your boss is giving you an unfair and unjustifiably hard time, you are to submit to your employer and so honour God in the workplace. Now, of course, such a command was profoundly challenging to the first readers of this letter, just as it is to many of us. I know there will be many people here this evening who are thinking, if you knew how irritating and difficult and unpleasant my boss was, you'd understand why I think actually this part of the Bible is just impossible. And then you read verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps I think that's one of the most remarkable statements in the New Testament isn't it to this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps now, in the first part of this letter, Peter has been at pains to explain the uniqueness of Christ's death. So again in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Christ's death was unique. For in his death, the one of immeasurable worth, bore my sins and yours so that we could be right with God. Christ's death was unique. But it was also an example to follow, not to earn God's favour, but in response to it. Christ's suffering was both unprovoked and undeserved. He suffered because he did good. He suffered because he submitted to authorities instituted among men. And you, if you are a Christian, are to do the same, verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's quite a challenge, isn't it, for the workplace this week? What are you going to do with the snide comment? How are you going to respond to the unjust accusation? How are you going to cope with the patronising put-down? When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself and them to him who judges justly. You see, knowing God's impartial judgment, we seek, even for those whose offence against us is great, we seek not retribution but redemption 
You see, for us and for them, Jesus bore the sins of many in his body on the tree so that we and they might die to sins and live for righteousness. Even when you face ungodly opposition, live good lives that commend the gospel, submit to civil authorities, submit to your employer, follow the example of Christ. As I finish, let me just read some some words from John Piper, an American pastor who at the moment is is, is actually suffering from cancer. But he he was reflecting on, on some of the reactions to the now infamous cartoons in recent days. And he said this, Am I missing it? Or is there an unusual silence in the blogosphere about the Muslim outrage over the cartoons of Muhammad? To me this cries out for the observation that when artists put the crucifix in a flask of urine, Christians are grieved and angered, but no one threatened to kill anyone. Our longing is to convert the blasphemers with the good news of Christ's death and resurrection, not to kill them. Our faith is based on the one who was reviled not just in cartoons, but in reality, and received it patiently for the salvation of the cartoonists. These riots are filled with intimations about the glorious difference between Christ and Muhammad and between the way of Christ and the way of Islam and the cowing of the press around the world and the US government is ominous for the fear we are under of Islam not just extremist Islam. I do not respect the teachings of Islam which when followed devoutly lead to destruction. So I have been pondering which will take me out first? Islam? Uncle Sam? Or cancer? No matter. All authority belongs. May we speak for him and live lives that commend the gospel that the world might know that he died for them too. And we ask it for Christ's glory. Amen.